If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Benvenuto Cellini was one of the most talented artists of the 16th century. But his life story was even more extraordinary, including murders, plague, imprisonment and even necromancy. Jerry Brotton, Professor of Renaissance Studies at Queen Mary University of London, is presenting a new BBC Radio 3 series on Cellini, and he's also written about the artist for their April issue of BBC History magazine. Here, in an interview with the magazine's editor, Rob Attar, he explores the life of the man who Oscar Wilde dubbed the supreme scoundrel of the Renaissance. So um, in the piece that you've written for us, you wrote that Cellini led a violent and passionate life that makes Caravaggio look like a choir boy, which is an incredible sentence in itself. So to start with, I wonder if you could just briefly introduce Cellini to our listeners and explain why his life was so extraordinary. So Cellini's uh, life is from 1500 to 1571, so he's really at the high point of the artistic Italian Renaissance. Um, But alongside that, he lives this extraordinary life. Um, He's trained firstly as a musician in Florence, uh, then as a goldsmith. Um, He travels to Rome. Um, He's involved in the sack of Rome in 1527, which is one of these epic uh, moments where Rome is pretty much destroyed. He's involved in the defences of Rome. He then goes on to create some of the great artworks um, in Rome, but also he travels to Paris. He works for the French king, Francis I. He takes Leonardo da Vinci's job. Um, He sort of develops his work as a goldsmith into into being a sculptor. He makes this most amazing uh, golden salt cellar, which is one of the sort of iconic objects from the Renaissance. He travels around, he goes to Venice, he goes to Mantua, to Naples. Um, He then cast this most extraordinary, one of the great pieces uh, of Renaissance art, which is uh, Perseus with the head of Medusa, which you can still see uh, in Florence. Um, he leads this sort of very passionate but also very violent life. Uh, he There are accounts of at least three murders. Uh, he's charged with sexual misconduct, sodomy with men and women. Um, he's always getting into fights with people uh, wherever he goes. Um, and towards the end of his life, he returns to Florence, um, and he's fated as one of the great artists, but still leads this sort of turbulent life and is there at so many key moments in the Renaissance. He's a kind of extraordinary figure. And the amazing thing is that he writes it all down. He writes this autobiography, the Vita, the life uh, of of his doings and his art, um, which again is a fantastical story about a fantastical period. And how unusual is it for someone like him to have written an autobiography like that and and also how how reliable a document do you think it is in terms of some of the extraordinary events it narrates 
He's interesting as a writer because he, he only writes it towards the end of his life. And what's interesting is that this is around a period where he's again accused of violent behaviour, of sexual misconduct, and his career seems to sort of be on the wane. So he turns to writing. Um, the autobiography is interesting in that it really is pretty much the first great autobiography. Some of the Italian Renaissance artists like Ghiberti before him have sort of written about uh, their careers, but nobody's done it in the way that he does. It's this incredibly colourful, picaresque, almost novelistic story. Now, I think that with that, of course, as anybody does when they write the autobiography, they tend to take some artistic licence uh, with what's truthful, and they certainly magnify certain episodes. And I think Cellini is one of the, uh, the, the biggest examples of this. So we can align the autobiography with what remains of the archival record. And it's reasonably reliable in terms of the events that he describes. So it's a great resource for historians. But at the same time, many of the, the stories we know are patently untrue. And he also skates over some moments. So when he's first accused uh, of sodomy uh, in 1523, it's not in the autobiography. Um, some of the more violent acts, again, he downplays. He talks about fighting with people, but they don't get into uh, the, the text either. So it's a mix and historians are, are always playing around with trying to see what the record still tells us and how it aligns with the text itself. Now, even in that, there's, there's interesting facts because we can see that he's often uh, drawing on earlier models for writing. He's probably read Dante, he's probably read Boccaccio, other Italian writers from the late medieval, early Renaissance tradition. So he's often uh, constructing a certain way of, of representing himself based on those models. So we absolutely shouldn't take it at face value. But even where he's effectively lying, there's an interest in why he's lying and how he's lying. There's quite a lot of violence in his life story, and we have this image of the justice system at the time as being much harsher than today. So how was he able to remain at large for so long, considering these violent acts? It's very interesting how law and criminality works in this period, because as an elite figure, I mean, he's not high-born, but because he's such a talented artist... Um, relentlessly charges that are placed against him, particularly of fighting and violence, and indeed murder, he does get off with it. He's often fined or he's briefly arrested. And what will often happen is he'll turn to his patrons. Uh, and in some cases, the Pope, one of the Popes famously says, well, you let people off like Cellini because of the fact he's a great artist. And Again, people like the Pope, of course, want Cellini because they don't want him behind bars because they want him to be making great art to celebrate them. So it's an interesting one about the, the subjectivity of criminality in this period. And there's no doubt that more low-born people who aren't as talented don't get away with it in the same ways. The big irony is that the one time he is imprisoned, uh, which is when he returns to Rome um, in the 1530s, and he's thrown into the Castel Sant'Angelo, which is uh, uh, a prison in Rome. And it's really, he's done nothing wrong. He's been caught out in the midst of sort of political uh, and personal rivalries. But all the accusations of murder and extreme violence and malicious wounding, he does tend to get away with. And this is the sort of flexibility, I think, and, and to some extent, the you know the, the the unequal nature of law in this period. And what do you think was behind this this violent streak? Was it just something 
his personality or what was were the circumstances around him compelling him to act in this manner it's really difficult to to make the distinction between uh, the fact that of course this was a very violent uh, very uh, sort of short and brutal world where people uh, were involved in honor uh, killings uh, vengeance you know local vendettas and that's certainly part of Cellini but there's clearly something more there he's uh he's a real braggart he believes that he's absolutely brilliant he is the greatest artist and he tells us this relentlessly so I think when you have somebody like that who also has a bit of a chip on his shoulder uh his father is an artisan he's quite low born uh Cellini is constantly pushing back against the fact that he's trained as a goldsmith he's not seen as as it were a fine artist like Leonardo and Michelangelo who's his his great sort of uh he, he doors he worships michelangelo um so he's constantly pushing back against people saying well you're just a mere goldsmith and i think that causes a lot of the conflicts so i think it's a bit of both he he's in a world of hyper masculinity where honor is all important so he's quick to reach for his sword but one of his biographers uh, said this about him a victorian biographer said he was as adept with the sword uh, as he was with the chisel as a sculptor um, and that really does define him so he he's more than i think you see in, in in many renaissance artists there's something more problematic about his character and coming on to his sexual crimes as as they were then anyway so he was frequently accused of sodomy. So in some senses, would we say that he was a homosexual? And is this an example of anti-gay prejudice at the time or is something more complex going on? His sexual identity is really interesting because he certainly was uh, confessors to, to, to sodomy uh, with other men. Um, he's also accused of sodomy with women. The crime of sodomy in the period covered many supposedly unnatural acts. So it could also uh, refer to, for instance, sex with animals. It was anything that was really seen as non non what we would call now uh, heterosexual and non procreative if it wasn't about reproduction it was seen as problematic so i don't think though that we can ascribe him to being gay um, this is certainly what happens in the late Victorian period. People like Oscar Wilde think he's, he's extraordinary. They they pick up on this tradition of uh, the the sodomy accusations with men, and they they sort of re they sort of reclaim him as a as a gay icon, and that certainly works throughout the nineteenth and twentieth century. I think that the work that's been done in the last few decades on the history of sexuality now problematised that, and they'd see him more as somebody who is simply about acts. Of, of, of sexual gratification and I think sort of acts that are quite sort of uh, you know non-consensual I think there's something that he seems to enjoy this kind of behavior with men and women so I also don't think we can really call him bisexual anyway we know that there were uh, literally thousands of accusations against men uh, for, for sodomy. Florence was particularly uh, known as a place where there was a, a lot of uh, accusations of sodomy. To be called a Florentine became a sort of byword for having sex with other men. So I think it is more problematic. And, and as we look at him now, we see a more sexually fluid and complicated figure than somebody who was really just a sort of repressed gay man. And I'm absolutely convinced by that. And that makes him more interesting Interesting. So it's not, I don't want to uh, downplay the fact that yes, there was sex with men, 
But again, historians, even people who work in lesbian, gay and queer studies would now say there isn't an identity of uh, gay male culture or indeed what one calls homosexuality. And I'm using that term very specifically because it's a 19th century invention by sexologists and critics like Michel Foucault and his work on history of sexuality, Foucault himself being an out gay man, talked a lot about this. So I think this makes Cellini actually far more complicated and interesting as somebody who, yes, has sex with men and with women, um, but it's not about the identity. For Cellini, it's about the act of those sex sexual practices. And, and I suppose what you were saying about it, these acts not always be consensual would greatly problematise the idea of him being any kind of icon for any form of sexuality. I think that's a really important point, which uh, the series is uh, trying to confront, that I think in a Me Too moment, Cellini looks very problematic. Uh, there are many uh, descriptions in the book of his violent uh, behaviour, often towards apprentices, and they are young male apprentices who clearly he's also uh, having sexual relationships with, and also with his female models. He uh, sleeps with a lot of the models. He's very open about that. He has children with the models. They're very much being used by him. And I think that this is, uh, of course, something that we look at with real discomfort. And I think one response is to say, well, that was the historical period. But also, I think we could point out that there are artists who do not do that. So I think we really have to look at Cellini in the round and say, he is a really, really problematic figure. He is not somebody I would like to meet. I'm not really writing a biography of him because we're doing uh, a podcast series on him. But he's he's not somebody, as it were, I find compelling in uh, as a figure that I'd like to engage with. But I think we have to account for him because the art is so extraordinary. And there's no doubt that the art itself is very violent and very sexual in many ways. And that's clearly uh, a reflection of him as a man. Um, and a lot of feminist art historians have already been talking to me about this, about how uncomfortable they feel about him in relation to the work, but that doesn't mean that we, as it were, cancel out Cellini. I think he offers us a more complicated, it's a darker picture of the Renaissance, and that's an important story, I think, to tell. And that is actually an interesting question, isn't it? Because you have a lot of discussions, I guess, about people who are around much more recently, about whether you can separate the artist from the art, and, you know, can we enjoy someone's art when we know they were a, a terrible person? Do you think because this is so long ago, that's slightly different? Or do these questions still come up with Cellini? I think that we still do have to address them because uh, we can't whitewash them. Uh, I've been very keen in the series to interview both a lot of uh, feminist art historians and also female artists and talk about this question. And they have all pointed out that, yes, the issues of his life have to be set against the work, um, many of the artists have said that that's what they detect. They can sense that. Um, they do not want to then say, we should now not engage with Cellini or we should not admire the artwork, but also acknowledge the world that it's come out of and the person that's produced it. So I think to say it's a long time ago, yes, is fine, but I don't think that that means that we uh, shouldn't still really try and tell that story, as we might do it with Chaucer, as we might do it with uh, Boccaccio, even earlier figures. Um, it's important to say this was not a period of sweetness and light. This was a period of, of, of violent 
uh, oppressive power structures which affect sex and sexuality as much as they do political representation or the, the place of the, the laboring poor. All those issues, I think, need to be addressed to tell a just, I think, a richer story about the Renaissance. And one of the most extraordinary stories in your article about him, which I think I'll have to bring up, is when he uh, tried to have devils conjured up in the Colosseum. I mean, could you tell us any more about that? That just sounds extraordinary. It is the most extraordinary moment. And I think we have to ask to what extent, you know, it's true. But I think always with Cellini, there's a germ of truth in the story that he tells. He says that he's fallen in love with a Sicilian woman and he uh, loses her and, and he's trying to get her back. So he hires uh, a, another Sicilian priest who's also a necromancer who's known for being able to conjure devils. And he says that the uh, the necromancer says, well, meet me at the Colosseum and we're going to uh, create, uh, we're going to evoke uh, devils and we're going to try and be able to kind of cast a spell on this woman so you can get her back. And he says, by the way, you must bring a young boy who's also a virgin. I mean, it's completely bizarre. Um, Cellini says, fine, um, turns up. Um, they start. Uh, they start the spells. They, you know, they they draw a pentacle. Uh, they evoke the devils, and Cellini says these devils appear, um, and that they fill the Colosseum. Cellini says he roars with laughter. He's just delighted by this. Uh, the young boy, he says, actually, um, sort of as he puts it, loses control of his bowels because he's so terrified by what he sees. The whole story about uh, the girlfriend and all that seems to sort of disappear. And again, it's just this marvellous, mad, epic story that Cellini wants to tell about how he can do anything. You know, he can make great art. He can travel throughout Europe. He can bewitch uh, kings and princes. And he can also conjure devils. Um, So did it happen? Clearly something happened. And there's no doubt he was a transgressor. He he loved breaking rules. So for him, the idea of working with uh, necromancers to try and bring devils to raise the dead. He talks about it a lot in his art. He says that creating uh, bronze casts of classical figures for him is like pouring uh, molten bronzes, like blood that he's pouring into casts and he can recreate life. And I think this is the basis of these stories. I mean, obviously, devils did not appear in the Colosseum, but the fact he can tell these stories, it's its part of the the, the kind of crazy creativity uh, and transgressiveness of, uh, of what Cellini is all about. And one part of his story, which is particularly topical right now, is his experiences of the Tuscan plague in the late 1520s. How devastating event, an event was this plague and how much did it affect Cellini himself? The plague of 1527 to 31 ravages um, Italy. Um, One of the consequences is uh, that Cellini, of course, starts to run around because he's trying to move from court to court because he's really playing hit and run uh, with plague. It's devastating. I mean, the accounts are shocking. And uh, for us, I think now even more so, um, estimates of around 20 to 25 percent of of Florentines die from the plague. Devastatingly, it's probably not the worst incidence of plague. You have earlier periods of plague. You go right back to 1348, which is the the Great Black Death. Boccaccio describes it in sort of graphic details. There's a a later, much more serious uh, plague uh, in the 1620s and 30s in Florence. Um, It's ever-present. The plague is always there. 
And we've tended to forget this. Uh, and now we realize it again in our own moment of pandemic. Um, and the Italian peninsula is particularly hit hard because, of course, it's precisely the confluence b- between northern Europe and the Mediterranean. Uh, it's been hit hard again, really, for similar reasons. It, it is terribly sort of echoic of what happened in the 16th century. Cellini's father dies of the plague. He returns to Florence. Um, His father is infected. He dies. Um, There's an interesting issue about what then comes out of it, because uh, many art historians, and, and I agree with this, is that it nevertheless shapes further creativity. Artists are disseminated across Italy, so the styles start to branch out. So the Roman style of artistic representation starts to go as far as France because people leave. They leave centres of plague and devastation. They work in other cities. They take their stylistic approaches with them. And I think that Cellini is part of that process as well. So it's endemic. It's always there. Um, indeed, there are extraordinary uh, responses, the public health responses around quarantine, um, around uh, plague hospitals are, again, very, very powerfully present and and sound very similar to us. Um, And again, people anxious around lockdown and breaking lockdown, and then also disputes and debates about when you need to uh, ease lockdown because you need to get trade going again. It's tremendously uh, prophetic for what we're going through now. And indeed, from what I've been talking about with contributors in Italy, there's a sense in which that moment from the plague throughout the 16th century that Cellini also experiences, there's an awareness in the long historical memory of Italy today that it's always been something that Italians have dealt with. And indeed, some people have been saying to me that as a result, that's why, although it's hit Italy very hard, there's been a a much stronger response in terms of people following through regulations, because they're hardwired in their historical memory to the impact of pandemics. Still to come on the History Extra podcast we look at him again as a touchstone about telling a different story about the Renaissance, um, which is both light and dark, because you can't have the lightness of this period without also understanding the darkness. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. eBay gets it, so look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love, and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Now, you've alluded already to a few of Cellini's works, but I wonder if you could maybe just point out 
some of the pieces he created that you think are the most outstanding? One of the greatest pieces that he makes um, is when he goes to uh, France. Uh, he goes to France and works uh, for the French King Francis I um, in the 1540s. And he makes, uh, remarkably, it sounds rather mundane, but he makes uh, a salt cellar, <laughs> literally just so the French King can have it on his table and he can have a pinch of salt and pepper, um, past the salt, as it were, Um but what Cellini does is something extraordinary with it. So it's it's made from gold. He shapes it from gold. It's quite small because, as you can imagine, it would sit on a on a table, the king's table. So it's very lavish. But it's the most amazing object. It shows uh, figures of uh, the sea and the land. Uh, the land is a woman. The sea is a man. Uh, the legs are entwined. Uh, you see the sea between them, and they have uh, objects either side of them for holding the salt and the pepper. Um, so in terms of its uh, symbolism, it's incredibly innovative uh, and clever of Cellini. It's a beautifully raw object. Um, you can still see it's, it's, it's in uh, the museum in Vienna. It was stolen recently, which is interesting. It's a sign of sort of, and it was returned. Um, it's the first great masterpiece that he makes. Interestingly, uh, we now think it's partly about a bigger global story. Francis I wanted a representation of salt and pepper because he was trying to break in to the international spice market in the Far East. The Portuguese had already done so, and Francis I wanted to catch up. So to have this elaborate salt cellar that he could display to visitors uh, and take a pinch of you know, exotic pepper connected you to a sort of bigger global world and a global market that Francis I was trying to break into. And what's brilliant about Cellini, he's able to see that, he's able to pick up that kind of idea, fuse it with these uh, classical motifs uh, of these uh, figures of the earth and the sea um, and create this most astonishing object, which is also about his craft. He's, he's a brilliant craftsman. He's absolutely extraordinary. He can work in anything, silver, gold, marble, you name it, he can create something amazing. So that's really the first, uh, I think, great masterpiece. The other piece is... Um, what's called the Perseus uh, with the head of Medusa. Um, and this is a statue which still stands um, in Florence. You can go and see it. Um, and it's really the climax of his career. He's asked to uh, make uh, a statue based on Perseus by his Florentine uh, patron, who is Cosimo de' Medici. And Cosimo uh, has returned the Medici to power. He's crushed uh, Republican forces and he wants an image of sort of masculine imperial authority. So he says to Cellini, I want something uh, that, that represents Perseus. Um, Cellini then takes over and does the most extraordinary thing that he has an image of Perseus um, beheading Medusa and he holds the head of Medusa up. So this amazing bronze statue towering statue um, holds the head of Medusa with the naked body of Medusa um, beneath the figure of Perseus and Perseus is holding uh, the sword that's just decapitated her. Um, so it's a terrifying image in many respects. It's a political image because it's saying here is a sort of representation of masculine imperial authority crushing feminine republicanism. It's kind of quite scary in a way. It's also an epic piece of artwork because it's a single bronze cast, which is just unheard of on this scale, nearly three metres tall. 
And the climax of Cellini's book, and indeed it's in Berlioz's opera about Cellini, is about the casting, the, 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 the casting of this bronze in molten bronze and how he achieves that. And it's a most unbelievable piece of work um, on many grounds, but also, again, quite scary because it's very much, it's somehow it's erotic, it's violent, it keys back in to who Cellini is. It's perfect for its brief by its patron. Um, and the most wonderful bit about it is it stands in the square where Michelangelo's David was. And the head of the Medusa is looking straight at Michelangelo's David. Now that's made, um, it's sculpted, of course, out of marble. And the thing about Medusa is that if you look at the Medusa, she turns you to stone. So what Cellini brilliantly outrageously has done is take on Michelangelo's David and say, look, I can make something out of bronze, which is bigger and better, even than my great mentor, Michelangelo's David. And it's brilliant because she's turning Michelangelo's David into stone. It's the most extravagant thing of Cellini to do. Such chutzpah to do this. Um, and you can still see it there today. Amazing piece of work. So how does Cellini actually fit in with some of the other Renaissance giants, people like Michelangelo, Leonardo, and you know some of the other names that I guess many of our listeners will be familiar with? It's a really good question in terms of where he stands because he reveres Michelangelo. Um, doesn't say much about Leonardo. But the difference, I think, is um, what he makes and in what materials. He's trained as a goldsmith, so much of the work doesn't survive because it's often melted down, gold and silver at certain points, you know, uh, is just decided that we need we need we need the raw material. So a lot of his work is lost. He doesn't paint. Um, the sculptures remain, but he works very slowly. So one of the problems is we just don't have as much to go on. So we have things like the salt cellar, we have the Perseus, we have some later marble pieces, an amazing crucifix, uh, which has survived. Um, but I think the difference is, both in terms of before and after, you think about Caravaggio is also a very bad boy, rather like Cellini, but the painting has survived. And it's easier to both uh, see that and understand in reproductions the painting, and indeed of uh, Leonardo. Michelangelo, we still have things like the Sistine Chapel, so it's there. Much less has survived from Cellini, so I think that that's the problem. He certainly comes after that great uh, early flowering of the Renaissance, uh, and people like Brunelleschi, Leonardo, and Michelangelo. I think in a way he ends the Renaissance. I think his work is a sort of summation. People often uh, call him a mannerist uh, artist in the sense that he produces this highly mannered, uh, highly sort of uh, sort of flexible, almost musical image uh, of of the human body, which is developing from Michelangelo. Um, that's okay. I think it's a little bit simplistic. Um, I think as a craftsman and in terms of his of his innovation, he is as good as those people. He's <laughs> desperate to tell us that. But the work that survives, I think, if we are able to uh, have three or four times as much of the surviving work, we would probably speak of him uh, in the same breath. But he has, in a way, I think he suffered from that. I think he suffered from the lack of surviving work. And weirdly now, I think he suffers a little bit from uh, the autobiography because uh, his life is really read more than his works are seen. Um, and that's a sort of big irony for somebody who wrote the book 
to celebrate himself as an artist, but actually we tend to read the book more carefully than look at the art. So hopefully the series will enable people to look at the art as well as read the book and you know see him as, as one of those great figures. Am I right to say that as well as being an artist, he was also something of a musician too? He is a musician in his early years. It's fascinating that his father um, is a musician and he plays for the Medici court. And this is a really big deal. His father wants him to be a musician. There's a real conflict in the early sections of the autobiography when he says that he's in conflict with his father because he decides quite early on he wants to be a goldsmith. Um, He does, however... Uh, learn various instruments. He plays a version of the recorder. Uh, He plays uh, what's called a cornetto, uh, which is a a fascinating instrument, um, which has sort of fallen out of style, but um, highly skilled to use that kind of instrument. He's a singer. Apparently, he has a great voice. Um, He does sing uh, for the Medici. When he first goes to Rome, he draws the attention of the Pope, not as as a goldsmith, but as a musician. And then he uses that for papal patronage to then say, by the way, I'm a pretty good goldsmith. So music is really important for him. And I think you can almost see that although he turns away from it, much to his father's anger, because his father says, look, it's a great job. You're effectively a a, a civil servant. If you get a job as a musician, you're in for life. And he turns away from that. But I think although he's quite negative about his musical capabilities, he's clearly very talented. And I do think that in the later work, you see a sort of musicality. You see the movement of the figures, perhaps caught in bronze or in marble. But there is something, again, that you can see in that movement of the bodies, a, a musicality. Because, of course, music was ever-present. One of the things that we're trying to do in the series is make the point that we tend to forget about music in the Renaissance. Because unless you're trained as a musician, um, you tend to. I, I'm not very musically inclined, so it's something that I've not attended to as much. But the Renaissance soundscape, especially in somewhere like Florence, is very important because you'd have heard music everywhere from the bells, which, of course, made from bronze, uh, right through to the music in the court, but also everyday music in the street, as well as music um, in the church. So I think it's central to uh, Cellini's life and also to his creativity, although he's quite down on it in, in the autobiography. And I wonder if we can move on to talking a little bit more about Cellini's afterlife. I mean, as you said before, he's not perhaps so well known today, but am I right to say there were periods where he he actually did sort of rise and fall in terms of how well understood he was in the popular mind? Absolutely. He completely takes off, um, really, from the late 18th century. The autobiography, interestingly, remains in manuscript until the late 18th century. That's when it really uh, starts to have an audience. It's uh, only printed, uh, as I say, in the late 18th century. And then it coincides with a sort of romantic moment that uh, the European romantics really uh, get into Goethe, Uh, the great uh, German romanticist, translates the uh, autobiography, says that he's this extraordinary figure. If you want to understand the Italian Renaissance, read this book. And they, I think they, they somehow see this idea of the tempestuous creative genius who pushes everything else in life away because it's all about the art. And they lock onto that. They see a certain romantic aesthetic uh, in Cellini. Berlioz's opera uh, in 1838 again celebrates him as this great creative genius. Um, Byron loves him. I think Byron, uh, Lord Byron uh, gets him because he, he sees him as a bad boy. And again, he talks about his, his sort of violent behaviour. Um, and then in the late 19th century, uh, the aesthetic movement really picks up on him. So Oscar Wilde uh, 
rather wonderfully called him the scoundrel of the Renaissance. And when Weil goes to America, he goes on an American tour, he ends up going to uh, a mining town in the Midwest called Leadville. And he says he goes down the mine. And because he sees these miners working uh, in precious metals, he starts lecturing them on Cellini. <laughs> it's the most extraordinary story. And they're bewitched. They say, this is amazing. And they say, why didn't you bring this guy Cellini? And he says, well, he, he, he died a while ago. Um, in fact, somebody then says, uh, what happened, Cellini? Um, he says, he dies. And one of the miners says, who shot him? Um, and it's this kind of great moment of, again, Cellini somehow uh, capturing uh, a moment for, for the late 19th century. Um, and then in the 20th century, uh, he's picked up as a gay icon because of the accounts of the relations with men. Um, Hollywood gets hold of him. Uh, so there are Hollywood films. He's turned into a sort of romantic hero. No references to gay sex there. Um, and even, I think, really into the late 20th century, uh, people like uh, filmmakers like Terry Gilliam, uh, who also... Uh, directed uh, the Berlioz opera recently, wanted to make a, a film about him. I talked to Terry Gilliam and I said, how would you have done it? He said, well, it'd be like fear and loathing in Renaissance Italy. He said, again, you know, Cellini is this character, he breaks all the rules. You know, he's somebody who's so fascinating because it's all about him, um, but it's also all about the creativity. Um, and then I think really from the late 20th century, he does sort of drop away a little bit. There's a way in which I think perhaps... The autobiography is too much. Um, as I said, the art, maybe there's not as much uh, around, but he's always been present somehow. He's a touchstone, I think, for, for artists and creativity um, because he's so open. Um, so, you know, he can be appropriated as a as a sort of gay icon. He can be appropriated as the artist. He can be appropriated as the traveller. Um, he can be appropriated as a writer, as well as writing his autobiography. He writes treatises on goldsmithing, on sculpture. He writes sonnets. It's an outpouring of, of work in his late years, of writing in, the late, in his late years. It's kind of remarkable. So I think hopefully this is, uh, this is a, a way of recovering him without uncritically praising him as a man. Um, so hopefully we, we might look at him anew again in this early 21st century moment. And just finally, how do you think Cellini and his life should shape our understanding of the Renaissance era more broadly? Well, I, I hope that really what the series is trying to say is that he almost captures uh, the high and declining moment of the Renaissance. I think that he's there so profoundly at the heart of everything. He's there in Florence at that sort of apex, really, of uh, great Florentine art and culture, uh, and also with its political changes from a republic to sort of a form of tyranny, really, uh, under the Medici. Um, he's in France at that sort of high point of, of the sort of French Renaissance flowering under Francis I. Obviously, he's in Rome and he's working for the papacy. So he's at the heart of absolutely everything. And the work, again, uh, touches on so many different areas, you know, of draftsmanship, of uh, artisanal work, if you like, which, of course, is so important, you know, uh, objects made from gold and silver, also working you know, in uh, cast metals like bronze, but also working in marble as well. So I do think that he, he captures a moment of the high Renaissance, which is also not sweetness and light. I think it leads us to think again about that period, even in the popular imagination that we still tend to think of it as, as such a sort of flowering that you know, artists are able to sort of create wonderful things. Yes, they are. But as Cellini shows us, 
it comes out of a period of terrible violence, of international conflict, of uh, plague and death uh, mortality rates, you know, so incredibly high. So I think that um, we look at him again as a touchstone about telling a different story about the Renaissance, um, which is both light and dark, because you can't have the lightness of this period without also understanding the darkness. And Cellini certainly takes you into that darkness. That was Jerry Broughton. His 10-part BBC Radio 3 series, Blood and Bronze, begins on the 22nd of March at 10.45pm and will also be available on BBC Sounds. You can read Jerry's article in the April issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now in print and digital formats. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.